Thank you, G. And, you know, before last Sunday, the elders were debating whether we would have our very first outdoor service because it was scheduled to be the hottest weekend of the year. And ultimately, we decided, you know, we're going to do it. Uh, we'll, we'll do our best with cold water, fans, and, and things of that nature. And, and praise God, what a worshipful service it was last week. Yesterday, we were debating the elders again because we were worried about the air quality, whether we should uh, do something different today. Um, but uh, thank God that the air quality was, is much better than we had feared. But one of the elders reminded us uh, in our group text that in vast parts of the world, Christians are gathering every Sunday without air conditioning, without uh, clean air, uh, oftentimes without um, uh, the protection of the law uh, and fear of persecution, but they're simply gathering because they're commanded to worship together. And I'm so glad that uh, we can do so as well. And thank you, uh, church, for gathering. I, I see so many of you. And some of you I'm seeing for the first time in many, many months, so I'm so glad to see you. I'm so glad to see kids, and our uh, Catapult Youth kids are having their worship on the other side of the facility in a, in a safe and clean outdoor area. Praise God for that time as well. There are a lot of kids over there, I believe. Um, so, so good to worship together. You know, um, as Pastor Chris Chi mentioned that the churches in Brea are gathering for Feed Brea. And you know, what I appreciate is that the churches, the evangelical churches in Brea, we don't consider each other as competition or enemies, but rather we're all on the same team proclaiming the gospel together. And the pastors of these churches are friends of ours. Uh, and I have a prayer request uh, regarding a friend. Pastor Kelly Fellows, who's the senior pastor at the Refinery Church, and the Refinery Church is the, the church right near downtown Brea. Uh, we found out a few days ago that he actually has COVID. He's in the hospital. Um, he's sick. Um, and they're praying that today could be a turnaround today, that, that if his lung function doesn't recover, that uh, he'll have to be put on a ventilator. The church did its job by isolating, testing everyone that they needed to, so, um, you know, it, it's not spreading per se, but we need to pray for Pastor Kelly Fellows, a fellow pastor uh, in our city. So can we do this? We're going to take like 20 seconds. Can you verbally lift up a prayer for Pastor Kelly Fellows, and, and I'll pray for us. Let's take 20 seconds. Let's pray. So Father God, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for our brother friend uh, of the Lord Church, Lord, and this together, Lord, and we pray that, that you would allow him to recover fully. May your grace be upon him, may be with his family and his church family, Lord God. Oh, Lord Jesus, we know that we need you. Father, we come before you and we thank you that we can come and gather and pray together. We pray for our brother, our friend, fellow pastor, fellow uh, proclaimer of the gospel, uh, Pastor Kelly Fellows, and we pray that you would be with him even right now, that, uh, that you, the Holy Spirit, would begin a recovery in him. 
that, Lord, that you would allow his lung function to, uh, to rejuvenate, that he'd be able to um, uh, breathe on his own, that you would begin the, rec uh, the healing process, that you, your presence would be upon him and his church family. We thank you that we can be in prayer, we can be of one heart and one mind. We look forward to the day where he fully recovers and gets back up on the pulpit and is able to proclaim the gospel. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, our, our passage for today is Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52, if you have not found it yet. You know, prior to today's passage, there are two categories of miracles that Jesus uh, had shown the crowd. The first category of miracles is that of healing, that he would go into town and heal all sorts of illnesses, uh, physical as well as demonic illnesses, and people would bring their friends and, and they would gather in mass. In fact, the next passage says, uh, in the next town that he goes, that people would gather and try to touch the hem of his garment in order to be healed. Jesus was curing one of the greatest problems that humanity had known is that of illness. There's a second category of miracles or, or pain that he uh, helped cure, and that is that of hunger. Pastor Chris Chi talked about how last week, feeding of the 5,000, that's just 5,000 men, many more thousand women and children, is perhaps the, mo the biggest miracle that he did because so many more people were able to experience it. So in that miracle, he, he cured, had an answer probably for the second big pain point that people knew and that of, that of hunger. So Jesus um, uh, personally was able to single-handedly solve two of the biggest pain problems that people had, sickness and hunger. And what happens now, it is John who it gives a, a parallel account of how that ends. And it is really important to understand how John looks at what happened. So after the feeding of the 5,000, listen carefully, John 6, 14 and 15. When the people, now it's, it's important, the crowd, the people, saw the sign that Jesus had done, which is the feeding of the 5,000, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world and perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So in John's account, the people saw the miracles, the healing and the feeding. He, he solved two of the biggest pain points of that culture, and they were about to, by force, make him king. Make him president. Make him a politician who will use um, human solutions to solve human problems. And what happens in our passage is a response to that. And so now, let's look at Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up onto the mountain to pray. And when he, evening came, the boat was out of the sea. And when he was alone on the land, 
and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not fear. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What happens in this passage is a response to the crowd trying to make Jesus a politician. Um, and in this passage, I believe there, there are two things, what Jesus is not and what Jesus is. Jesus is not president, and Jesus is someone who is much greater than that. The operative word in verse 45 is immediately. Now, immediately. So it's a response to the people trying to make him king at the response of the feeding of the 5,000. And it says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Now, what is strange here is this. Now, um, the disciples only knew good when they were close to Jesus. But why is it at this point in time, Jesus sends them away from him? What was the intent? I believe Jesus is not simply sending his disciples away from him, but it says that after he sent them away, Jesus remained behind and dismissed the crowd. What Jesus was doing was not sending the disciples away from him, but sending them away from the crowd. And there's an important reason for this. The, the crowds were intent on making Jesus a political solution. They were, they were uh, yelling, four more years, four more years. We want Jesus to become the next president. Can we make him our leader? Can we make him our political solution? But Jesus repeatedly says that he is not of this world. In fact, in uh, John chapter 18, he's standing before Pilate, and Pilate asks Jesus this question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers and says that my kingdom is not of this world. You know, um, the goal that Jesus had with his disciples, if you think about it, if Jesus came simply to die on the cross, he could have come, climbed upon the cross, and died immediately. But you have to ask yourself, why is it that Jesus spent three years with the disciples? What was his intent? Was Jesus' intent to make the disciples as moral, as righteous people as possible? Was his uh, intent to have them be impressed with who he is or to impart miraculous powers upon them? But I want you to think with me. I mean, those things are all helpful, but the primary reason why Jesus spent three years with his disciples is this, is for them to understand fully who he is and who he is not. And at this point in time, it is dangerous because the crowds are in a frenzy and saying, well, Jesus can uh, feed the masses. He can cure the masses. Now, 
they believed that he was the solution to their third big problem, perhaps the problem they thought was the biggest problem they had, not hunger, not illness, but the oppression by the Romans. And so they said, let's make him king. And Jesus was fearful that his disciples would get swept away with that, that they would not see Jesus for who he is, but whom they wanted him to be a political solution. So he sends them away into the middle of the sea, and Jesus goes away and prays. So the disciples were in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, which is technically a freshwater lake, but a huge one at that. And it says that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Matthew's version says the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. They were rowing all night long to try to get to the other side. And I believe in the middle of the night, some of the disciples were asking themselves these questions. I wonder why our master told us to uh, go away from him in a boat in the middle of the sea. I wonder why Jesus sent us away the last time we were in the middle of the storm in the ocean. He was with us asleep, and when we awoke him, he calmed the ocean. Why is it that Jesus uh, sent us to a place where we would be battling a, 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 a dangerous storm? I believe they were, gonna, they were asking themselves this question. We thought that if we were simply obedient to the Lord and we did exactly what He told us to do, that we would be safe. We would avoid the storms of life. Why is it that Jesus sent us into the storm? It is the same question that many of us have at times in our lives. It is the same question that Job had in the midst of an extraordinarily dark time in his life, he and his friends were asking this question, why is it that God is allowing this? It is the same question that people of certain theological persuasions have, that if we are good, that God would guarantee health and wealth. And it is the same uh, question that many of us, even those who are in the conservative evangelical, the people who love the Bible, people who love the Lord, ask that if we are good, we thought that God would be good to us. Why is it that it is not good right now? I believe the disciples were asking themselves this question that if we were simply obedient to what Jesus is saying to us, that he would not send us into the storm, but this is exactly what happened. It is because of their obedience they ended up in the middle of the storm. You know, I was talking to a friend a while back, and, um, and their daughter was sick. Um, and it was a long, dark journey for them. And, and this family loved the Lord, obedient to the Lord. And it's the kind of family that you would say, wow, I, you know, they have this radical Christianity. Not only that, they had access to the best uh, medical care in the world, actually. But when their child was going through illness, uh, my friend confessed that it was, it was such a dark time for their, themselves. And although theologically they, they know that it was hard to understand in their heart, 
that, that we thought that if we were good, that God would protect us from this kind of pain. And so oftentimes, we subconsciously think that Jesus exists as a glorified politician, that he makes promises, and if we're good enough, if he uh, supports his platform, that he would protect us from the pains of the world, but the disciples are in the middle of the storm wondering. Jesus reminds us that he is not a political solution. He is not the president, but he is someone so much more. It says it was during the fourth watch of the night, which is about 3 to 6 a.m., and that, that tells us that the disciples were rowing all night, and they were going nowhere. They were rowing into the headwind, stuck in the middle of the sea. And from a distance, they saw a figure walking toward them, and it says that they saw him walking on the sea, and they thought it was a ghost and cried out. I don't know about you, but if, if I was in the middle of the storm... If I was in the middle of the ocean in the dark and I saw a figure coming toward me, um, I would be scared and I would cry out. You know, I, I, um, I don't have any kind of experience like that, but one time I remember my family, we went to Catalina, we took a little boat and went out boating. And, and uh, we were diving a little bit and I realized, boy, this, this is, if there's a storm or something bad happens, I'd be scared. They saw a figure and they cried out. The fact that Jesus was walking on water when they realized it was him, that was cool, but it was what happens next that reveals what Jesus wanted them to understand. He says to them, listen carefully, now this is important. This is probably the meat of the, uh, the sermon today. Take heart, it is I, do not fear. In the middle of the storm, Jesus says to the disciples, Take heart, do not be afraid. Take courage, don't be afraid. And I want us to understand oftentimes when, when the storm hits us, when bad things happen to us, when pain hits us, friends, well-meaning friends come by us and say, Hey, hey, don't, you know, take heart. Be courageous. Don't be afraid. But uh, I, I hate to say this, but most of those, thing, most of those statements, well-meaning, but they're empty. There's nothing behind it. Are, are we just trying to play mind games? But it is what Jesus says in the middle of that. Take heart. Do not fear. But it's what he says in the middle of that that makes these other two statements valid. In English, and I feel bad saying this for all those who translated, interpreted this in into English, it's a hugely weak sauce translation. And Jesus says, it is I. It is I. Grammatically correct, but not what the original language says. In Greek, ego, a me. In Hebrew, Yahweh, or I am. When M Moses was talking to the burning bush, the presence of God, 
God commands Moses to go to the, his people and liberate them. And he says, if they ask me what your name is, what do I tell them? And God tells Moses to tell them, I am Yahweh. I am. Not I was, not I will be, but I am. Not I am something was a, as a descriptive, I am good, I am loving. I, no, simply I am. I am, I'm the, the primary cause. No one created me. I am the sovereign God. And that particular name of God is so holy that the Hebrews, when they were reading the Bible in, in Exodus 3.14, when they would um, read it aloud, they would pause at the name Yahweh and they would not say it because they thought it was such a holy name. And when Jesus is walking toward the disciples, take heart, do not fear, in the middle, I am. Grammatically incorrect, but profound theologically. You can have heart, you don't have to fear, not because someone is giving you pop psychology, not because there's something great within you, but because I am. Do you understand what Jesus is saying about himself? He is not saying that he comes a great political solution. He's not saying that I, 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 I can bring healing, but he's saying I am, I am God. Verse 51, he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. This is not the first time that Jesus calmed the seas. And in Mark chapter 4, uh, they get into a storm. Jesus was asleep at the sterns. They wake him up. He rebukes the storm, and the disciples respond by saying, uh, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So a couple chapters ago, when Jesus calmed the storm, um, he, uh, he, God, uh, Jesus, uh, showed that he has authority over nature itself. The disciples begin to wonder, who is this? He can't be just a man. He's much more than that. Chapter 6, Jesus calms the storm again, and it says that they were surprised, astounded. And it's verse 52 now. Um, and, and, and the reason why the feeding of the 5,000 was important is because it gives us insight into what's going on here. Look at verse 52. It says, they were astounded, and the reason they were astounded is because, verse 54, because they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The reason they were surprised that Jesus can calm the seas is because they didn't quite get the lesson that they were supposed to get at the feeding of the 5,000. They were still thinking Jesus was a prophet a potential king, a politician, president, but not God himself, not the great I am. After countless healings, countless teachings, feedings, miracles, the disciples still didn't quite grasp who the person of Jesus was. They thought that he was a miracle worker. They thought that he was sent by God, but they still didn't quite understand that he was the great I am. 
You know, the goal that Jesus had for his disciples the whole time, and I want you to think with me, he could have come and just died on the cross immediately. But for three years, for three years, Jesus spent time with the disciples. He did, only, he did stuff that only God can do. He forgave sins. He says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He taught as one who had authority. He said that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He said, I am. But I want you to think with me, he could have climbed upon that cross earlier, but it wasn't until the disciples were starting to get it. And at one point in time, he said, well, who do the people say I am? But who do you say I am? And when Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it is then that Jesus said, that's right, Peter. Now you are ready to be the foundation of the church because now you're beginning to understand that I am not merely a great teacher, that I am not simply a miracle worker, but I am God. And he, he was drilling into the thick skulls for three years that I am more than just a president, but I am the I am. You know, I, I, I want us to understand how important this is. Uh, for many of us in this room, we may believe that, well, don't all Christians believe that Jesus is God? And I would say to us that we may theoretically understand it, but oftentimes we forget it here. And oftentimes we don't even agree theoretically. Uh, Lifeway Research did a, a survey that was just published a few days ago. And they asked this question, do you believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God? So Jesus, is he like a Buddha or Confucius, great teacher, moral teacher, but not necessarily God? Of the U.S. adults surveyed, more than half, 52% believe that Jesus was a good teacher, a great teacher, but not necessarily God, which is understandable. Uh, if you're just doing a broad survey of the general population, but listen carefully. This was surprising. Of the evangelicals, and, and when we say evangelicals, uh, that means that those who go to churches that are Bible-believing, uh, that supposedly believe uh, that Jesus rose from the dead and things of that nature, that the Word of God is inerrant, without error. Of the uh, American evangelical adults surveyed, 30%, 30% agreed, uh, nearly a third, that Jesus was a great teacher but not God. And nearly a third, one out of three evangelical Christians believe that Jesus was a great politician then, a persuasive one, a good and moral one. And they're willing to still go to church and try to emulate him. But here's the problem. Why would people follow simply a great teacher and believe that that would save them? And, and the reason is this. The same survey found that 46% of evangelicals believe that everyone sins a little, but most are good by nature. Almost half of the evangelicals surveyed believe that 46%, about a half, are good by nature. 
and the reason why they were they are ex, uh, willing to accept that Jesus was a simply a good teacher is because they believe that people are generally good and not wretched sinners do you understand why Jesus had to tell them convince his disciples that he was God he, he kept saying I am God I am God I am God I, I am almighty sovereign creator and when they finally kind of got it he said I need to die on your behalf because you're that valuable to me because only the death of God can bring forgiveness for your sins and that's the God that you and I have and that's who says Take courage. Do not be afraid. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, we come before you and we thank you, the great I am. We thank you that you're not simply a, a good moral teacher, but so much more. We thank you that we can come before you as wicked sinners, totally broken, but forgiven only on the basis, only on the basis of a God who decided to climb upon that cross for our sins. We thank you once again and we give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.